men. Friends, how do you look at other professing Christians who maybe don't agree with you on every point of doctrine? Maybe they have a, a different ecclesiology, different doctrine of the church, maybe a different eschatology, different view of how things are going to end up in the end. Maybe even some areas of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, differs a little bit from yours. Maybe they are Christians who have different practices than you or us. They, they worship maybe with different instruments, more or less instruments. There are many differences among Christians. Are you one who can readily dismiss certain ones as not even Christians at all because they don't do things exactly the way you do it or your church does it? Or, more likely, are you tempted perhaps to look at them as maybe second-class citizens that don't have it all together? They're a little bit ignorant, a little bit inferior to yourself because of what you understand. Well, even as I say those words, brothers and sisters, I'm aware of two ditches that we could possibly fall into. Let me call ditch number one the ditch of naive inclusivity, where we might think anybody who simply names the name of Jesus must be a Christian. You just name Jesus and, oh, you're a Christian because you name the name of Jesus. That could be a, a naive inclusivity. But the other ditch is the ditch of narrow exclusivity. And here, out of spiritual pride, we can look down on other people who are second-class citizens because they're not part of our group. They're not part of our particular expression or subset of the Christian faith. And so we have a narrow, too narrow exclusivity. Well, in our study of Mark's gospel this morning, and I'll ask you to be turning to Mark chapter 9, we will see that Jesus is concerned to keep his disciples out of that second ditch. He corrects their narrow exclusivism. The correction, actually, in the context, follows a more stern rebuke that Jesus had given to him. They were on the road discussing which one of them was the greatest. This is getting near the end of Jesus' ministry. Imagine, they still had ideas of the kingdom of Jesus that it would, would be one of earthly glory and grandeur. And imagine the twelve arguing among themselves which one of them was the greatest. Well, in response to that, Jesus burst their proud bubble with these words recorded in Mark 9, 35. Sitting down, he takes the posture of the official teacher. He called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You guys want to be first? It's okay to want to be first, but let me tell you what constitutes primacy in my kingdom. You got to be the servant and you got to be last. And that bursts their proud bubble. And then Jesus takes up in his arms a small child as an object lesson, as an illustration. And he says in verse 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. What was the significance of that? As we saw in the previous hour, sometimes children are an example of humble faith and dependency. In this case, what he seems to be saying is, you want to know what service is? You know what? You want to know what it is to have a servant's heart? It's to serve someone who can't serve you back. And children were helpless, needy, dependent. And in that society, they were not very important, not nearly as they are in our society. You want to be a true servant? The measure is, are you willing to serve those who, like a little child, can't give anything back to you? 
But then hearing the phrase, in my name, whoever receives such a child, in my name, triggers something in the memory of the Apostle John. You see, there was some previous occasion, we don't know when, when John and the other apostles had come upon a man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And it triggers his memory in Jesus' name. Oh yeah, we saw this guy casting out demons in Jesus' name. And so he brings up a particular incident, perhaps wondering if we were right or wrong on that occasion as well as when we were talking about who was the greatest. Maybe his conscience was panging him, or maybe he's seeking to justify the action that they took. Whatever the motive, he brings up that incident, and it is recorded here in Mark 9, 38 to 42. That's our text for this morning. Follow as I read. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. I want us to see three things from this text. John recounts an incident of apostolic exclusivism. Jesus corrects his apostles' exclusivism, and then he gives four reasons why their exclusivism is wrong. If you have a bulletin, the outline is printed there on the back so you can follow along. First of all, John recounts an incident of apostolic exclusivism. And what we want to note here is what they saw, what they did, and why they did it. All right? So what they saw, verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. What they saw briefly, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Now, we're not sure when they saw that. We know that Jesus had sent the 12 out on, on mission trips to preach and to cast out demons. Perhaps it was on one of those mission trips that they had seen this man casting out demons. Now, it is noteworthy that this man wasn't merely trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name. He really was casting out demons. There is an account in the Bible of certain ones who tried to use Jesus' name to cast out demons, and it didn't go well. Let me just, you can turn there if you want, or just listen as I refer you to Acts chapter 19. In verses 11 and 12 of Acts 19, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried about, um, carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Then dropping down to verse 13, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches." Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
Well, there was an interesting attempt to use Jesus' name to cast out demons, and it didn't go well, did it? Obviously, they were frauds. They were not truly devoted to Jesus. And so in his name, they had no power over the demons, and they had no protection from them. They get, end up getting beaten up by the demons. But not so with this man. Although we have no record of Jesus commissioning him, he was effectively casting out demons. Now, could he have been one such as described by Jesus in Matthew 7.22 in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, in the last day, there are going to be people who come and say, Lord, in your name, have we not cast out demons? In your name, have we not done many wonderful things? And you know the answer. I will say unto them, depart from me, you cursed. I never knew you. It could be that he was one of these, but it doesn't appear to be the case. So that's what they saw, a man casting out demons in Jesus' name. What they did, and we tried to prevent him. Note that John did not act alone. This was a concerted effort by all of the disciples, all of the 12. Perhaps John was the leader in this action, but we tried to prevent or hinder him. The word prevent or hinder, King James has forbade or forbade. It means to cut off or cut short. It's used in Matthew 19, 14, when Jesus uh, says, do not hinder them. Do not hinder the children from coming to me. Same word. It's used in Acts 24, 23, when Paul was in Roman uh, imprisonment under a Roman guard, and, and the man guarding him in his rented quarters was not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. Now, how they tried to hinder this man from casting out demons, we're not told. Did they physically try to restrain him? Did they verbally rebuke him, or did they try to just discourage people from going to him and attending on his ministry? We don't know how he did it. Uh, <clears throat> but it's pretty clear that they failed. And one of the reasons for that is, is in the Greek, the imperfect tense is used. We were hindering him, indicating that they were not succeeding. The man kept casting out demons, even though they were attempting to hinder him. It wasn't working. So what they saw a man casting out demons in Jesus' name. What they did, they tried to stop him. Why they did what they did. Did you catch it? Because he was not following us. Okay? He was not following us, the 12, the disciples, the apostles. The sole reason for them trying to hinder this man was he was not part of their band, part of their group, part of their society. And the thinking was, if he's not part of us, he can't possibly be doing any good for Jesus, right? <clears throat> now, there are a number of questions that arise to which we cannot give definitive answers. Where did this man come from? We don't know. Maybe he was one who heard Jesus preach and, and had attached himself by faith to Jesus. Some believe that he was a follower of John the Baptist, and, and he had learned that Jesus was the Messiah that coming one through the ministry of John the Baptist, we don't know. It's also interesting to ask, what was the motive of the disciples in seeking to shut this man down? Could be that it was the same attitude of superiority that caused them to argue among themselves, which of us is the greatest? Um, and maybe it was that same jealous spirit of superiority that motivated them to try to shut this guy down. Um, 
It could be. But there could have been some noble concern as well. Their concern for their master, their concern for his reputation. And they didn't want anybody misusing his name or doing anything wrong in his name. So it could have been a mixture of selfish motive and, and some noble motivation to protect the name of their master, Jesus. But with all that we don't know, this we know with certainty, and, and this is the second major point, Jesus corrects his apostles' exclusivism. That we know because that's what's said in the text. But Jesus said, do not hinder him. The disciples were quick to be critical and censorious toward this man. Jesus was more disposed to be lenient and generous and hopeful about this man. And he says, don't stop him. As if to say, be be patient with this man, be forbearing, believe the best about this man. He appears to be doing something good. So Jesus, you see, is far more charitable than his disciples, isn't he? Note that Jesus' correction is not a stern one. I like alliteration, and rebuke would have gone a lot better with uh, recount, but it's not a stern rebuke. When they were arguing about themselves, that was pretty stern. But here, it's just more in the form of an instruction rather than a rebuke. Perhaps because John was coming with a teachable spirit. Lord, you've just rebuked us for arguing among ourselves. And I do remember this other incident, and maybe we should bring this under your review as well. How did we do? Were we right? Were we wrong? John may have had a teachable spirit. And so Jesus answers not with a sharp rebuke, but rather with instruction. So here's the third major point. Jesus gives four reasons why their exclusiveness was wrong. In verses 39 to 41, we have three uses of the word for. An explanatory word, for, don't hinder him, for, or because, and he gives four reasons why they should not have hindered him. Reason number one, anyone who experiences Jesus' power will likely be endeared to him. Look at verse 39. But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. What he seems to be saying is, this man is using my name effectively. Demons are really being cast out. Nobody who, exp- who attaches himself to me and experiences the power of what I can do is likely to speak evil of me. He's going to speak good of me. The more he learns about me through his experience with me and his ministry in my name, the more power that he will experience of mine and the more he will be inclined toward me and endeared to me rather than turned against me. So that's his first reason for them not hindering the man. Reason number two, he who is not against us is for us. Verse 40, for he who is not against us is for us. Now, when you look at that, you might question, now, wait a minute. There are people who are not for Jesus, um, but they're not really against him either. Uh, don't you, haven't you met people like that? People who say, oh, I'm not against Jesus. Oh, I think Jesus was a good man. He was a good teacher. I think he did the world a lot of good. They're not against Jesus, but as you talk to them, they're not really savingly attached to Jesus. They don't love him. They're not trusting him for salvation. 
So is Jesus leaving room for that? Is he saying it? As long as they're not against me, even they're, if they're indifferent toward me, uh, that's okay. No, he doesn't seem to be saying that. Rather, he seems to be correcting John's and the other disciples' overzealous condemnation of this man. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson as he comments on this. Quote, what had concerned Jesus was that John's response to this man had been totally negative because John's chief interest had been his own exclusive relationship to Christ and his commission from him. He had manifested a them and us mentality because he was anxious to safeguard his own role. So Jesus had explained the real issue is not whether this man is one of your group, John, but whether he is for or against me. In the last analysis, it is more important that the servants of God are devoted to Christ than that they are one of us. You follow that? He's saying to John, John, you're making too much of the fact they're not, they're not part of your band. That's not the issue. The issue is, are they attached to me, John, not whether they're part of your group. And that seems to be the main point here. This man did not appear to be publicly identified with the 12 or with any other group of, of Jesus' disciples. It may be that he had a lot to learn about Jesus. Maybe he was only instructed from John the Baptist. Maybe he was a baby believer. He had a lot of gaps that needed to be filled in. But Jesus says, you need to believe the best about this guy. I mean, he seems to be for us. After all, he's casting out demons in my name. We're against demons, right? And they had seen Jesus many times cast out demons with a word. Well, he's doing the same thing. He's against demons. We're against demons. He's casting out demons in my name. You have seen the power of my name when Jesus, just because of who he is, says, be silent and leave, and they obey. And so um, he seems to be on our side. So don't hinder him. He's on our side. He's fighting the same enemy. He's using the same weapon. But now there's a third reason why they shouldn't have hindered him, a third four, and that's in verse 41. Jesus has regard for the smallest service done in his name. Verse 41, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Here's the third general principle. The first is you shouldn't prevent him because anybody who experiences my power will speak well of me and not evil of me. Second principle, general principle, those who are not with me are, are against me are with me. You see, once you get a knowledge of Jesus, you can't be neutral anymore. You either move toward the light or away from the light. And if he's not moving away from the light, he must be moving toward the light. And here's a third general principle. The slightest act done for Christ's sake will be rewarded by God. Giving a cup of cold water in my name. If somebody gives you a cup of cold water because you're a follower of me, that's going to be rewarded. Now, Cup of cold water is no big deal to us, but if you're living in the Mideast there where you couldn't just turn on the, the faucet and you're under that burning sun that could cause dehydration and, and a lot of uh, threat in your life, a cup of cold water is, is a lot bigger a thing than it would be to us. But even such a thing as giving a cup of cold water in my name is something that I will reward and my Father will reward. And this man, 
and, and because Christ notices those things, he appreciates them, and he will reward them. And in this case, the man seems to be doing more than just giving a cup of cold water. He's actually delivering people from demons in Jesus' name. He's doing a good thing in Jesus' name. And he seems to be one who will receive such a reward. But then the last motivation, last reason he gives in correcting the disciples as to why they should not have hindered or prevented this man is this. Verse 42, the horrible threat that hangs over all who cause a believer to stumble. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Now, in the previous incident, Jesus had taken a child in his arms and used him as an illustration. You want to be a servant? Serve those who like this little child who can't do anything back. No strings attached. That was a literal child that was used as an object lesson. Here, the phrase little ones probably doesn't refer to children per se, but anyone who believes in him. Because in other places, as we saw in the first hour here, with our brother telling about his work in, with orphans in Guatemala City, um, God wants, Jesus wants us to have a childlike faith. It's a, it's an, a holy, trusting, dependent faith. And so he says, he's referring here to any believer uh, as a little one who believes in me, who has a childlike faith in Jesus, a trust in Jesus. Here we see that Jesus loves childlike faith in his people. He loves people who have a childlike faith in him. And I think I've mentioned it to you before. I could be a little bit ornery at times, but I've often taken a little child and put him up on a table and said to that little child, jump, after I've earned the child's trust, right? I'm not a stranger. The child knows me. And I, I just tell the child, jump. Now, if the child jumped and I didn't catch him, he'd get hurt. But he doesn't think of that. He thinks, I know Mr. Chuck or whoever he calls me. And he just throws himself into my arms. That's a beautiful thing. Woe to the man who then backs up and lets him fall. But I catch him. But he trusts. That's the childlike trust that we're to have in Jesus. We take him at his word. And Jesus loves that kind of trust in himself. And he loves the people who, who trust him with that childlike faith. But here comes someone along who causes a believer, one of these childlike believers, to stumble. The word stumble is the Greek word skandalizo, from which we get scandal. A scandalon, the noun form, is a stick that springs a trap. You kids maybe tried to catch an animal, and you put a box there, and you prop it up with a stick and you tie a string to it and the squirrel or the animal runs under it and you pull it and the trap stick goes out and you trap the animal, you snare the animal. That's what's being, that's, that's the picture here. It's someone who's not trapping animals, but they're trying to ensnare believers, causing a believer of any age with childlike trust to stumble over his or her faith and to not believe in Jesus. It could be an unbelieving husband who has a, a Christian wife and he mocks his wife's faith and tries to discourage it. It could be an unbelieving wife who tries to manipulate her husband away from the meetings of the church. It could be 
and oh, how often it is, a skeptic professor who makes it his aim or goal or her aim or goal to undermine the faith in creation of a, of a believing high school student or college student. I mean, our, our universities, our colleges are filled with these skeptics. And that's why we need to be cautioned about what school we send our children to, because there are those who want to undermine the faith of Christians and cause them to stumble. It could be a liberal pastor. And there are many of those who don't believe the deity of Christ, the inspiration and inerrancy of the word of God, the substitutionary death of Christ. And they are causing the faith of people to stumble and they're leading them astray. It could be a humanistic counselor who doesn't believe that the work of conversion really changes people. And they apply all kinds of human psychological techniques to try to get you to change. Of course, the question is change into what? What's the goal? We know the goal is Jesus. Just a little aside, what do counselors want to change people into? When you're done with me, you're going to be better. You're going to be changed. But into what? What's your goal? What's your pattern? We know. I want the person to be more like Jesus. But um, any of these qualifies those who try to make a little one who believes in Jesus to stumble. And the point is, woe to such as those. Jesus is saying that to have a heavy millstone, there were two millstones that were used to crush grain. The larger one is the upper millstone. Better that one of those big, heavy millstones be wrapped around his neck and he'd be thrown into the depth of the sea and drowned. That would be a well death. That would be euthanasia. That'd be an easy death compared to what that one is going to face who tries to stumble the faith of a believer. So how does that apply to this? Well, on the one hand, it would be a great encouragement to the disciples. They were little children in their faith. They were trusting Jesus. It's an encouragement to them that if anybody tries to stumble your faith, they're going to suffer an awful fate. But isn't it also a bit of a warning here? That man casting out those demons, he may be one of those who has a childlike faith in Jesus. And John and Peter and Matthew, you don't want to risk causing him to stumble in his faith. There's a horrible fate that awaits those who do. So there's my exposition of this brief passage. And now I want to move to application. What are we to do with this? How are we to practice the truth of this passage? I first want to say, I don't typically do this, but I first want to caution against what not to draw from this text, okay? What we're not to take away from this text. First of all, these words of Jesus should not be used to defend an ecumenical spirit that creates an unequal yoke between truth and error, okay? You're familiar with that word ecumenical, ecumenism, it's, there's organizations that try to bring everybody under this big umbrella. And as long as you name the name Jesus, it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about the Bible. We're all just under this big umbrella, this big ecumenical movement. We're all just united. Don't take that away from this passage. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship have light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial or the devil? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Now, we often use that 
to apply to marriage, right? Don't marry an unbeliever. And that's a valid application. But the primary context is ecclesiastical. Don't be yoked in the work of God with unbelievers. And so don't take away from this that Jesus is saying that as a believer in Jesus, one who believes the Bible's the word of God and believes in salvation through Christ, that you can be of one mind and unified with those who deny those essential truths. That's not what he's saying here. It is not a, a reason to be ecumenical in that sense because you're uniting believer with an unbeliever and that is something that Christ forbids. So that's not what we should take away. Secondly, these words of Jesus do not mean that we shouldn't take every opportunity to teach the way of God more accurately to other believers or to learn the way of God more accurately. And I'll say more about that in a few minutes. But you remember um, Aquila and Priscilla who took Apollos aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This man perhaps needed further teaching. And Jesus is not saying that you can't bring him further along in his understanding of Jesus. He may have needed that. And so Jesus' command to not hinder them doesn't mean you can't come alongside him and, and teach him some things he needs to learn. And then finally, in the negative, these words of Jesus do not mean that we will have equal levels of fellowship with all believers or all groups of believers. You follow that? In life, you have concentric circles of friendships, don't you? Some are really close to you. Some are not so close. And that's okay. Jesus had the 12. And then among the 12, he had the three that he took to be privileged, like such as on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then amazingly, several times in the Gospel of John, John refers to himself in a very veiled way as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't he love all the disciples? Of course he did. But somehow he had a special attachment to John. And then a closer attachment to the three, and then the twelve. So it's not wrong to have different levels of friendship, and it's not wrong to have different levels of fellowship with the people of God. Are you with me on that? I mean, and often it's those with whom you share more doctrinal unity and more practical unity. You may feel more of a kindred spirit with them. That in itself is not wrong. But now, what does this passage teach positively? What should we take away for ourselves? First of all, beware of making hasty judgments about somebody's spiritual state based on superficial indications. Okay? Here was a man, he was not part of their group. He was not aligned with the disciples in a visible way. And they were ready to cancel him, to use the modern word, right? We're going to cancel this guy because he's not part of us. You know, he can't be doing any good. One lesson is beware of making superficial judgments about people when you don't have all the facts. They really didn't know a lot about this man. They didn't know what he believed about Jesus. And they were ready to cancel him on with very little information. For our purposes, we need to be very careful in that way as well. There are denominations and groups that, by definition, are apostate. They don't believe a saving gospel. Does that mean that everyone within that group is an unbeliever? No, not necessarily. And let's use the Amish as an example, because I've worked among the Amish for 16 years. 
evangelizing and discipling them. And I know dozens and scores of Amish people. And I know for a fact, well, I know as well as I can know, that there are believers within the Amish system. I fellowship with them, even ministers, even bishops. I have had Christian fellowship with some of them. Now, let's be quick to say they're not saved because of the system. They're saved in spite of the system, right? But God is bigger than any system. So we have to be careful. Oh, you're Amish? You must be an unbeliever, unregenerate, unborn again. Not necessarily. Many are not saved, but I have Known those who are saved. So that's a, just an example of don't be too quick to judge superficially based on superficial indicators. Um, don't be too hasty and superficial in judging, uh, uh, making judgments about other professing Christians. A second application, we should be charitable in regarding as true believers those who show some evidence of saving attachment to Christ. Isn't that what Jesus is arguing for here? Don't be so censorious. Don't be so negative. Be charitable. No, he didn't belong to your circle, John. But have a favorable, charitable attitude toward him. Give him the benefit of the doubt rather than be negative in your judgment. And then thirdly, we should be genuinely thankful for every sincere and true effort being made to advance the kingdom of God, even though it is being made by those outside of our group. The kingdom of God is very broad on the earth. The fields of conflict are many, and the enemy is ubiquitous. He is all over. And we need to thank God that we are not the only ones in the field doing the work of God, however we identify ourselves. If you ask me, how do you identify myself? I want to say biblical Christian. If you want to drill down a little bit more, I'll say, well, I'm, I'm a Baptist, and I'm a Reformed Baptist. I believe the doctrines of the Reformation, which we should be celebrating today, right? Reformation Day. And I get to say a little bit about that anyway. So who am I? I'm a biblical Christian, saved by Jesus. If you want to know more, I'm Baptistic. I believe believers should be baptized and not infants, and, and I'm Reformed in my convictions. I have a big God theology, but thank God that we are not the only ones in the field doing the work of God. And here, I need to give something of my personal testimony. I think it relates, and many of you know me well enough to know of my own pilgrimage. In the circles I was in, which I very much treasure in many ways, I found myself to be rather spiritually proud and elitist. And looking down at other Christians because they didn't dot their I's and cross their T's in the exact same way that I did. And about 16 years ago or so, God began to convict me of that and enlarge my heart. I was reminded that Jesus was not only full of truth, but he was full of grace. And I realized I want to be a man of truth. I want to follow the proverb that says, buy the truth and don't sell it. I want to buy as much truth as I can and not let it go. But I also need to be like Jesus, full of grace and full of graciousness toward others who may not dot their I's exactly like I do or cross their T's as exactly as I do. Some of you know I've used the language over the years. God has helped me sort out my gnats and camels and my small mammals. You know what I mean by that? Remember Jesus said to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. 
In other words, you're real concerned about tithing your, your herbs, your mint, your dill, your cook. Oh, got to get 10%. But in that, you're straining out a gnat out of your wine. But you're swallowing a, a two-hump camel. Gulp. You're forgetting things like mercy and, and love and, and these big issues. And I say, God has helped me sort out my camels and my gnats. And then I throw in their small mammals. There are camel issues in the Christian life, the things you need to believe to be saved. And they are the solas of the Reformation. Let me give a plug for Reformation Day. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And all to the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas we celebrate today, Reformation Day. Those are the things essential. Those are camel issues. And then you have gnat issues what you believe you need to put on your head as a head covering, you know, exactly what kind of music you're going to use, uh, use in church, how you're going to dress for church. There are all kinds of little gnat issues. And I want to distinguish camels from gnats. And then there are things that are not gnats and not camels. They're small mammals. They're middle issues. Like, it's important to me that we baptize only believers and not babies. It's important to me that I answer the question, how does a person get saved? Is it free will or free grace? Well, from my study of 51 years of the Bible, it's free grace, not free will. That's important to me. Not saving things, but important, small mammal issues. Do you hear what I'm saying, brothers and sisters? I think what I'm saying is this. If anybody shows evidence by their words and by their life that they're a true believer in Jesus, they believe salvation is by grace alone, it's a free gift, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that person is my brother or sister. I'm going to share heaven with that person. And I want to be very charitable and very loving toward They may not dot their eyes. They may not even understand as much as I think I do about biblical doctrine. But they're in the kingdom. They're believers. And I want to show them respect as a fellow believer, love as a fellow believer, and acceptance as a fellow believer. I don't want to cancel them. I don't want to exclude them. Does that make sense to you all? We want to be discerning Christians, but not overly judgmental Christians, but charitable Christians toward anyone who give evidence that they have embraced the biblical Jesus as Savior and Lord. And then my final point, and you know I'm so concerned about balance, and if any of you think I've been unbalanced, tell me, because I'm always concerned. I don't want to fall into either ditch. I want the balance of truth. The final point is this. Let's do all we can to advance the faith of all God's true people with whom we have contact and do nothing to hinder it. And so you may meet true believers who are baby Christians, or maybe they haven't been well taught, and maybe you've been steeped in good, sound, biblical doctrine for years. You probably have something to give to them. Do it. Aquila and Priscilla, they found this gifted orator, Apollos, and he was preaching effectively, but they came alongside him as a husband-wife team, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately because he needed it, and they did him good. And so there's a place for that. But I suggest that as you want to impart to others something they need to round out their faith, come to them with a humble spirit. Come to them with a teachable spirit, realizing you may have some things to teach them about doctrine, but they may have some things to teach you about the Christian life. 
I have met people in this area whose doctrine I may see as somewhat deficient, but they pray and fast like nobody's business. And in my circles, there's not a lot of praying and fasting. We have met Christians who may not be very knowledgeable in the doctrines of the faith, but oh, they have suffered well for Christ. And I need to sit at their feet. I, I may have things to teach them, and I want to teach them, but I also need to come with an attitude that is willing to learn from them. You've got things to teach me, and I'll tell you what I've learned over 16 years. If you want the opportunity to teach, you come with a learning spirit saying, I need to learn th some things from you, and more likely than not, the door will open for you to impart what you know to them. But if you come from the top down, I've got everything to teach and nothing to learn, the doors will shut because they will react to our spiritual pride and our elitism. I hope, brothers and sisters, I've conveyed a balanced perspective on this. I don't want to be a naive inclusivist, nor a narrow exclusivist. I think I'm trying to strike the note of what Jesus was saying here. Don't hinder him. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, if you can teach him more, maybe he should be part of the disciples. Maybe he didn't know about the disciples. Maybe he didn't, didn't have knowledge of any group. Maybe he's a lone believer out there, didn't know of anybody else. Work with him, but believe the best about him. Be charitable in your judgment. And a final word, if anybody is sitting here and you're not a believer in Jesus, you haven't really put your trust in him. I mean, yeah, you believe with your head. Jesus was a good man, a good teacher. Maybe he's the son of God, but he has never transformed your life. You've not become a new creation. This I will say despite all the differences among Christians, all true believing, Bible-believing Christians do believe this. We're all sinners under the wrath of a holy God. And none of us can save ourselves. The only way to be saved is to repent of our trusting ourselves and our good works and our performance and put our trust solely and squarely in Jesus Christ, his perfect life and his death on the cross for sinners and you will be instantly forgiven. The Spirit of God will take up residence in you. He will begin a work of making you more holy. And when you die or he comes, you will be taken to be with him forever. Whatever the difference is among true Christians, and there are many, all true Christians believe those things. In that, we are united. And if you're not a believer, may you believe even now with the promise, he who comes to me, I will not cast out.